pretty much all hospital medicine comes through the ER. That's where the admissions come from. That's where the sick patients come from. You know, unfortunately, those are not the patients that pay the bills. They're, you know, it's the elective surgeries and the spine surgeries. And we all know this, the administrators know this, but it doesn't make them any less important. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of Ivy Clinicians. On today's show, we're talking with an emergency medicine advocacy trailblazer, specifically through unionization. Dr. Dave Levin is one of the leaders in the first attending emergency physician union in the whole country. In this podcast, we'll be getting into why his group decided to unionize and what the journey has been like so far. Dr. Levin graduated from residency in 2011 and now practices at Providence Medford Medical Center in Southwest Oregon. It's a classic community emergency department with 21 ED beds. And the practice? We are uh, employed directly by the hospital. Um, that is, uh, by my understanding, unique within the Providence system for emergency medicine docs. Um, in fact, I think we might be the only ones um, in all of the Providence system, which is, a, which is an enormous medical system. Um, and it's been that way, uh, I mean, forever since, since emergency medicine began at that hospital. That's um, always been, been the case. Um, and that's actually was kind of the, the key to us being able to unionize is, is being employed rather than being a contract group or working for a CMG or, or you know, some other structure. We'll get to the unionization in a little bit, but it all started because Dave and the other physicians at Providence Medford were noticing some problems that they wanted to fix. So there's honestly, there's a bunch of things, but they all kind of surround um, loss of resources or loss of personnel um, and subsequently create what we see as patient safety issues. We have lost specialty coverage from from the ER perspective, uh, neurosurgery, GI, cardiology intermittently, you know, which probably is not unique to us, but it means that when you're in a smallish area, that then you end up transferring patients for what seem like routine issues far, far away. I mean, we, I mean, we transfer patients sometimes up to like 700 miles away from here for procedures oh. like ERCP, which, mm. you know, that's a, it's a relatively common need. We, you know, have struggled with staffing hospitalists. We have struggled with staffing our critical care docs. We've mm. uh, struggled with nurses and techs and um, even things like ultrasound coverage. We forever had 24 seven ultrasound coverage. And then one Friday afternoon, we get an email that says, starting Monday, no more ultrasound coverage overnight. It's all kind of surrounded those, those, those things where, and, and all things that we used to have that have gone away, some have come back in kind of a spotty or intermittent fashion, some are still ongoing issues. We are, um, one, one of the, honestly, the big issues is that we are being asked to do more and more within the hospital because to, to backfill holes. For instance, the intensive care unit, um, there's now a nurse practitioner staffing the ICU overnight, which is you know, obviously where the sickest patients are. And we were strongly asked to be the backup for intubations, for procedures, and that kind of stuff. Ignoring the fact that we're single coverage overnight for seven hours in our ER. <laughs> um, you know, I, and our primary responsibility is to emergency patients. I don't know what's going to walk through the door, what's going to walk into triage, what's going to get dropped off in the ambulance bay, you know, as a car screeches away. We just don't know. And um, we have, um, in many ways, tried to push back on that and say, hey, look, you know, there's got to be other solutions. 
um, to this, and really we get we, we've gotten functionally nowhere, which is one of the main mm. reasons that we kind of move towards unionization to really be able to to really require a, a good faith negotiation about big issues that that affect not only us but more importantly affect the patients that we're supposed to be taking care of. Got it. Yet, uh, unfortunately, I found out firsthand the problem with covering or backup covering the ICU or covering the ICU for airways um, at one of my previous jobs. So we were single covered overnight. I got called to the to the ICU. And while I was up in the ICU, a psych patient came in and was violent towards the staff and they had no way, no way to um, to control that patient because they couldn't get any orders from meds. Yeah, it, it, it's dangerous. It, it's just that's just what it boils down to. It's it's dangerous for the physician who opens himself to liability. It's dangerous for the patient in the ICU who doesn't have a secured airway when they need it. It's dangerous for the staff in the ER and the patients who are walking in. It's it's just dangerous all around. Agreed. So how did the hospital react initially when it sounds like you had very kind of classic emergency medicine problems, getting getting the right coverage, getting getting the right people to do the right procedures, problems with flow. What was the response from the hospital when you went to them and said, hey, this this is not good patient care? So uh, that that has been um, it's been disappointing. Um, the the responses have ranged um, anywhere from yes, we're working on it, followed by silence, to no response at all. Um, we have mm. written letters signed by our whole group say, you know, outlining our concerns about various issues, and off they go into the ether, and there's no no response. I mean, not not even a thanks for your letter kind of response. Mm. Um, there have been requests, you know, we've requested meetings with, with our chief medical officer, with our CEO, um, and sometimes the response is, again, nothing, and sometimes the response is, sure, we'll schedule a meeting, but then no meeting ever gets scheduled. I don't doubt that they are they are trying to problem solve. I, I mean, that, that's it's their job to, to problem solve. But I think when you are up in the C-suite and not in the midst of the overcrowding and the boarding, I think you're, you're missing out if you're not asking the people who are actually in the trenches if they have some ideas or some solutions. Um, because it wasn't a just us putting our foot down and saying, no, we're not going to do it. It's a how about thinking about this or option B or option C or, you know, some other combination of resources. And we, we just don't, we, we have no traction. That's frustrating, especially for, because most of us have been in this hospital for a long time. Um, so it's not, it's not like we're new, you know, new in the building and don't know how it works. Um, you know, we talk with the hospitals, we talk with the critical care docs, we talk with the surgeons, we know, you know, we're, we know what's going on and, and, have what we think are viable solutions, but are, we can't get our voices heard. Mm. Before you started down the unionization path, what what other options were you considering to get to get the hospital's attention? So, I mean, cer- certainly writing letters, talking to administrators when you pass them in the hallway. Um, our medical director has been working. I mean, I can't even imagine how many hours he has spent in meetings trying to get these points across. I mean, it's it's crazy numbers of hours, and. You know, it, it, he comes back and he says, yeah, I, I said this is, you know, here are some options and I get blank stares or I say, no, we can't do that. You know, or, or they say, no, we can't do that and, and, and move on. We don't have a lot of other ways to address these issues. You know, you, you can put it in writing, you can say it verbally, you can have your medical director who, you know, should have some sway within the, you know, the upper administration. You can have him say it, but that's really all you can do. 
you could go to the media, I suppose, but but we actually, you know, within our contract as an employee, we're not supposed to, you know, not allowed to do that. It's not that any of us want to air dirty laundry and, and create problems, but we desperately need solutions. Right. And and you were hospital employed, so you couldn't have some other entity that you know, a regional medical director out there come in and, and swoop in and talk to the CEO. Right. Well, you know, we, we have a, because Providence is a big system, there, there is a regional sort of emergency medicine director for you know, mm. the Oregon region, there's, you know, but, and he and our director, I think have a pretty close, close relationship, but again, there's only so much you can do. Um, you know, you can, only so many times you can say something and be ignored yeah. before you, 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 know, you come up with some alternates and, and really the, the, the only feasible alternate that we could come up with was unionization because it is federally required that they sit down and actually negotiate these things with us. Um, You know, no, I can't mandate nurse staffing in a contract, you know, in a physician contract, but we can Mm -hmm. very clearly outline the scope of our duties, who's responsible for what, when and how, all all of those things. And they have to come to the table for that. Got it. So let's take a quick step back as we dig into unionization. Can you tell us a little bit of history of, physician union unionization in the United States? Yeah, a little bit. So, um, so the first physician, uh, union was actually residents and that was in 1957, I believe it took a while before, um, anybody else really unionized. It was 1972 before the first uh, sort of attending union was formed, but it really kind of all started within academics. Even now only 6% of physicians are unionized. So it's a, it's a really tiny number. My understanding is that, is that much of that is still within academics, um, and then there are certainly some, some other sort of multi-specialty groups that are that are unionized. But for emergency medicine specifically, as far as I know, we are the first union for emergency medicine, um, you know, with no other specialties involved. And it's, I think there's, you know, there's certainly some employment restrictions on that in terms of you have to be a W-2 employee to unionize. You, can, you know, if you're in a CMG, you can't. If you're, you know, if you're in your own democratic group, you can't. So there, there certainly are not huge numbers, I think, also of physicians who could unionize. But I suspect and, and hope that will change as employment models change. And what's your sense of why residents got there first? What, what is it do you think about residencies that made them want to unionize? Well, I have to imagine thinking back to my residency that it has to do something with long hours and little pay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yes. uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know for sure, but it, it, it makes sense in a lot of ways. You know, whether you're an EM resident or whether you're an internal medicine resident or surgery or anything else, the working conditions are really difficult. And, yeah. you know, some of that is what makes good physicians, I think. You see lots and lots of cases, um, but also, uh, you know, there's there's some safety issues there, and I, I, I suspect that that's that's why most of what we where we see unionization is in academics with residents is um, because they they can and, and it gives them a little bit of control in, a, in an area of their life or in a time of their life when you really have almost no control. Yeah, I believe it. So this is this is the question I've been most excited to to ask you, which is how did your group go from idea to action on this without getting fired, without somebody coming in and saying, "Oh, you're you're talking about getting." But forming a union, well, you might want to work somewhere. Yeah, so that, that is a great question. And that is one of the first questions we tried to answer because all of us were honestly pretty terrified that we were just going to like show up one day and they're going to be like, you don't have a job here anymore. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. Particularly because Oregon is an at-will employment state, so they could fire us with no cause. That's that's totally legal here. As it turns out, once, you're, once a group of people starts discussing unionization in some way that is documented, and that could be by email, by text, 
or even multiple people corroborating a conversation, that actually enacts some federal protection for you. Mm. Um, now, it doesn't mean they can't fire you, but it means you would have some recourse um, if, if they did. Um, and so once we, once we sorted that part out and we're like, well, hey, we have this we have this text thread. You can go back, you know, six months and see that we were talking about this. It made us more confident sort of in moving forward. Um, I think particularly also in, in a relatively small area like we live in, it would be kind of a public relations nightmare for a hospital yeah. to say, hey, we just fired 14 docs because, you know, it, it, right. it, it would be it would be difficult. Um, it's a bad look. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a bad look. Um, and then that would allow then, you know, then, then that, of course, means that we have then the option to go to the media and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is why we got fired. This is what we were trying to do. Um, you know, obviously, I'm very relieved that didn't happen. Um, but um, I think looking back on it, the likelihood that we were all going to get fired over this was low. Um, but it's not zero. And you know, we, all, we all depend on our jobs. So, um, so right. it was a little bit, a little bit of a scary step. But once we kind of confirmed that that was the case, that we had some protection, um, things moved for our group really, really quickly. And we went mm. really like over the course of a couple of months, we went from, hey, what do you think about this as an option to one of our docs reaching out to um, a union rep, us having a meeting with that union rep as a group, mm. and um, yeah, really within months deciding to move forward with unionization. It was, it was, a, it was quick. Um, and I think we were able to do that mostly because we are a small group and we've all worked together a lot. We all see the same yeah. issues and we are all kind of like-minded in, in what our goals are. Got it. Yeah, it seems like um, one of the the keys with forming a union is is kind of vote counting in, in kind of a legislative way. I'd assume there were some folks in your group that were harder to convince than than others. How did those discussions go? So interestingly enough, um, that was not the case for us. Um, huh. So of our, our, our biggest issue was, was trying to figure out who we could actually include in our group mm. uh, or who was eligible to be included. So of our 14 physicians, thir- well, 12 of them were pretty much hard yeses, like right off the bat after we'd met with the rep, talked about things. Oh. It was, it was, all, it was already a majority. One of those was our medical director and we had assumed that he would not be eligible. Um, and so we kept him out of it on purpose because as a supervisor, if, if that's how he ended up being classified, yeah. his job would have been at risk if he had been you know, supporting a union. So we kind of left him out of it intentionally. And there was only one other physician who was kind of on the fence, but ultimately voted yes. So we had a, a 100% unanimous yes vote for unionization in our group. Um, and it really didn't take a lot of convincing. It was more of more of our discussions were around, what do we want to do? Once we all vote yes, what do we want to do next? You know, how do we want to move forward? And so I, and I think that's probably unique within, well, maybe not unique, but I think it's probably rare. You know, I think most unions are bigger numbers, so more personalities, more opinion differences. Um, but uh, we were lucky. We also um, were not sure at the time whether our PAs and nurse practitioner would be eligible mm-hmm. to be included in our union. As it turns out, they are, and they all voted yes as well. So of the 17 eligible voters, we had 17 yes votes. Um, and that includes our medical director, um, who ended up being included. So nurse practitioners are allowed in, but I'd assume the nurse, the the frontline nurses, were they not allowed in, or how, how did how sure. did the nursing right. so side of that is, work? Right. So so the the National Labor Relations Board, which is kind of the the national body that that oversees unions and creates regulations mm-hmm. and rules and those sorts of things, ultimately kind of groups um, people together by classification. So. Nurses unionize with nurses. Um, 
physicians don't unionize with nurses, but they can unionize with PAs and nurse practitioners. Hmm. Um, and that, that goes there. There are some seemingly little strange, you know, groupings like environmental services gets unionized with techs in the hospital, um, even though the jobs are clearly very different, but yeah. that's, that's, you know, that's, that's at a federal level, that's decided, that's not decided by, you know, the local folks. Um, but so, yeah, so the nurses have their own union. They, they have the Oregon Nurses Association, which is quite, you know, large in Oregon, um, and who actually, the ONA is supporting our union. Our, our negotiators um, are actually from the ONA. It, it's really, it, it's a, you know, the NLRB says, this is who's eligible to unionize within this group. Um, and that's, that's who you get. What we were a little worried about was that the other hospital employed physicians are, are our hospitalists. And we mm-hmm. didn't know if Providence was going to make a push to have them unionize too, um, in an effort to make the numbers bigger and therefore hopefully sow some, you know, some discord. Um, uh, but ultimately that the NLRB said, no, this is, you know, our physician group is, is an eligible group. And, and that was it. And what ended up happening with the medical director? The medical director end up in or out? Yeah, so he's in, um, which was surprising to all of us uh, because, you know, the NLRB says that supervisors and their definition of that loosely is someone who has significant influence over hiring and firing or can hire and fire is considered a supervisor and therefore not eligible to unionize. Um, our medical director, I would, I mean, I would have thought has significant influence. He can't directly hire and fire, but he has a large role in that. Um, But ultimately Providence submitted his name as an eligible union member and (laughs) we knew he was supportive. So we weren't, we didn't, we didn't argue it. Um, There was, you know, so it's great to have our, our director, you know, be able to be involved in all of this because he's ultimately in a lot of ways is it will be the voice piece to, to our administration in some ways, you know, he's on a bunch of committees, he's on the medical executive committee, all, all these things where the medical directors do. So it's great to have him. Perfect. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. So, in reading about your union, which, if I'm not wrong, is called the Southern Oregon Providers Association, you're connected with uh, two other entities. Um, one, you you talk about the Oregon Nurses Association, I guess three entities, so the Pacific Northwest Hospital Medicine Association right. and the American Federation of Teachers. Right. So can you can you kind of guide us through the the connection, the union sure, connections? Sure. There? It's, it's not it's not it's not totally intuitive. So. So the American Federation of Teachers is sort of the overarching umbrella organization. It's a federal level, and it's a big national organization. 
mm-hmm. um, they have um, representatives, you know, regionally. And so they're sort of the first point of contact. So our, our rep was the Northwest, you know, AFT rep. And she was fantastic. And she, you know, came and met with us, answered all our questions. We had weekly meetings with her. Um, and she kind of got us through the steps of actually creating a union, um, mm-hmm. you know, who's eligible, how the vote count works, getting the ballots out, counting the votes, all, all of those things. That, that's sort of the, the role of the AFT. We are unionized under the Pacific Northwest Hospital Medicine Association, which is the first position union in Oregon. And they are um, a group of hospitalists, um, as their name implies, based in Eugene. My understanding is, is that you, you know, it, it's kind of umbrella after umbrella after umbrella, but smaller and smaller as you go. So, you know, that they were the first physician group. So we unionize sort of under them, although independent. So they don't have a say about our contract, but we can, we get support from them. Um, and then the ONA is not under the Pacific Northwest Hospital Association, but is under the AFT. And they're a really large union. And so they have a lot of resources to offer. Um and so, you know, they're very experienced with negotiating contracts and how the hospitals work and, you know, ways, you know, the legal recourses that we have if the hospital won't sit down and negotiate and all sorts of things um, that we as a group of, of, you know, 17 providers just doesn't doesn't have access to otherwise. It's a little bit of us under under the Pacific Northwest Hospital Medicine Association, but more it's, it's just everybody kind of supporting each other. Um, you know, that they released a statement saying we support, you know, the Providence Medford docs for unionizing. You know, if if another group of physicians decided to unionize, then we would, you know, we would, you know, write or, or release a statement in support of that. Um, so it, it's it's a it's kind of a loose a loose collaborative, I guess, all under the umbrella of the American Federation of Teachers. Got it. And I'm trying to imagine the the, the drama of a union vote. Can you can you tell us the like how how that works? Is it like an actual like physical Dropbox or is it now yes. online? So, so, you know, b- because COVID changed, changed the world, um, the vote count was actually done on zoom, but you get a physical paper ballot. You just like when you vote in an election, you know, for president or governor or whoever, um, you basically check, yes, I want a union or no, I don't. You put it in a secrecy envelope, you sign the back of it and you mail it back to the national labor relations board. Our, our mm-hmm. local, our local offices in Portland um, so that all the ballots get mailed back, they have to be back by a deadline. Um, and then the NLRB representative um, basically gets on Zoom, goes over some ground rules about how the vote count works, what she, how she goes through it. And the Zoom link gets sent out and whoever wants to watch it can watch it. And um, basically they count the ballots and make sure that the right number of ballots has come back, that there aren't too many or someone voted twice. Um, they verify the signatures against the list that is not made public. Um, hmm. So that nobody watching knows specifically who voted yet, you know, which way, um, except in our case, it was all yeses. So I guess anybody, anybody could easily <laughs> figure that out. Um, and then they basically take the secrecy envelopes out and, and they, and she just opens each one and shows it to the camera and it's checked yes or no. And she just says yes and puts it in a pile and yes and puts it in a pile. And at the end they were all in the yes pile. So it was, it was for our group. I think we, we knew where this was headed, um, yeah. you know, just in talking to each other unless People were, you know, absolutely just lying to our faces, which, you know, didn't seem likely. We knew it was going to be yes, but we just didn't know it was going to be like 100% yes. Uh, we'd expected one person to, to vote no. Um, and ultimately, that person decided to change their vote. Um, what was the threshold? Time. What was the threshold that you had to meet? So it's 50 plus one to unionize. 
the union, so like the American Federation of Teachers said they typically won't move forward with a vote unless they're pretty confident they have at least, I think they said 72%. Now, just because it, it's it's a lot of work. It's, you know, it's a lot of work for the union rep. It's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of hours. Um, so if it's a, you know, if it's really close, they'd want to spend more time, you know, trying to turn, you know, change people's minds before they, before they move forward to a vote. Because if you lose, if you're, if you end up voting no, it's very difficult to gain that momentum back is what, you know, it's kind mm-hmm. of what we're led to understand. It's just hard to get people excited again if, if it doesn't go through the first time. Got it. And speaking of momentum, now that you became a union, um, what, what progress, what changes have you noticed in your interactions with the hospital? Um, so unionization is, you know, becoming a union is, is the first step. Mm-hmm. The next step in that is negotiations. Um, and that is, um, somewhere between an eight, uh, a 12 to 18 month process, mm. um, to get to a first contract. So the honest answer is we haven't done really anything in the last month or two other than trying to form our negotiation team, figure out what we want to you know, negotiate for and how we want to do it. So progress is going to be slow for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's not unexpected. We were told to expect that. It wasn't going to be a, now you're a union, all of a sudden, you know, you've got a great contract that says you're not going to the ICU to back up procedures and <laughs> you know, all the specialists right. are going to come out of the woodwork to help you, it, you know, as soon as you call. Uh, it's, just, it's just not, that's not the nature of the beast. Um, right. There's a whole bunch of things that are federally mandated that have to be negotiated, including salary and benefits and working conditions. And then there's all the extra things that we would like to negotiate, which is really why we got into this in the first place. All of that just takes a long time. Um, And it's really most employers will kind of drag their feet um, because Mm -hmm. the longer that things stay the status quo, the easier it is for them. Right. I mean, so, you know, my salary is frozen right now. You know, until we negotiate a contract, there's no raises, Mm -hmm. there's no you know, no changes in benefits. So it's really, they don't have a strong incentive to be like, all right, let's get this negotiations going and let's, you know, knock it out in a month. Um, so it, it's, it's going to be a little bit, a, a bit slow and that's probably going to get frustrating um, because we would all like to see change now, especially okay. since we just got an email yesterday about, you know, Hey, we want to revisit this ICU coverage thing. And, you know, <laughs> we, you know, at least now we can say, you know, no, we'd not, we're not going to revisit it until we're negotiating it. It's like, and because it changes our, our, our working environment, they can't force us to do it. Um, and so it, 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 it does change in that, it changes things in that regard where that, you know, it can't just be an administration saying, okay, now you're going to work 12 hours just instead of eights, or now you're going to, you know, your shift is going to start at this time instead of that time. They can't change any of those conditions until they are negotiated. Um, so it at least gives us a little, uh, a little breathing room to really kind of sit down and figure out our strategy and figure out what we really want, what's important, how hard to push on certain things, mm-hmm. what not to push on. Um, so yeah, not it's not quick, but it'll get there. Got it. And one of the things that I find most inspiring about what you're doing is you're really focusing on the patient and on delivering the care that you want to be yeah. delivering in the emergency department as a highly trained emergency physician was was pay like usually when you think of of yeah. unions like oh they're they're probably you know going to strike for you know some percentage of increased pay but you right. haven't even mentioned pay like it, what's how does that factor into all this so so I, I i would be i'd be lying if i said pay wasn't an issue but it's not it's by no means the main issue um you know we're physicians we get paid well i i live comfortably on my salary um, the flip side of that is inflation is up about 17% over the last several years, and we've had a 1% raise in five years. Mm. Um, 
on top of being asked to do more and more, manage patients for longer because there's no inpatient beds, manage patients while they're waiting to be transferred, you know, for sometimes two or three days without any, you know, increase in compensation to, mm. to account for that. So yes, there will be some salary negotiations for sure. It's not our main focus. Um, it's not what led us to unionize. It's, it's a, but it is a federally required bargaining subject. So it has to be negotiated yeah. and, and we'll certainly do that. Makes sense. So I was, I was actually at um, ASEP leader, leadership and advocacy conference when, um, when the announcement came down that they guys had, had unionized and there's a lot of buzz about that in at the, at the ASAP LAC. Do you feel like you, there might be a trend or others are following in your footsteps towards unionization? I, I hope so. And it, it's not not that unions are a panacea. I mean, we, we cannot fix everything. I cannot, you know, make neurosurgeons out of thin air and make them work here. It just, you know, it's, it's not it's not how that works. Yeah. Um, but I think there there needs to be there need, we need to have a, a significant voice at the table, at any table that involves, you know, hospital medicine, because pretty much all hospital medicine comes through the ER. That's where the admissions come from. That's where the sick patients come from. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, the, those are not the patients that pay the bills. They're, you know, it's the elective yeah. surgeries and the spine surgeries. Um, sure. We all know this. The administrators know this. But it doesn't make them any less important. That's, you know, I, I think that's that's why most of us go into emergency medicine is it's, it's, it's medicine for everyone. Um, right. And we, we think that that's where the resources should be. You know, yeah, you need your elective back surgeries. I get that. Um, but those are moving to, you know, outpatient center, you know, outpatient surgery centers. We need to have the resources for the patient who actually has a spine fracture with cord compression. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, and not, not, you know, be trying to send that patient 700 miles away, you know, after three days of watching them get worse. Uh, that's just not, mm. that's not fair. That's not how healthcare is supposed to be. Um, and certainly there are issues beyond even our hospital's capability of managing, you know, but in the end, that's why hospitals exist. Um, right, and, right. And that's really, that should, in my opinion, that should be the focus. Got it. And so it's some of the objections that I've heard about unionization basically come from folks who have worked in uh, unionized nursing hospitals and have noticed things like, you know, the nurses tend to not be as motivated. There's, sure. uh, they're, they're not as fast. What kind of objections have you heard that, that ring true? So, I mean, similar, similar things. I think, um, you know, once you're unionized, it is, it's hard to get fired. You know, even if you're terrible at your job, it's hard, hard to get fired. Um, you know, if your union contract says you get your breaks, then you get your breaks. Even if that means, you know, 30 <laughs> people are sitting out there waiting. Right. Um, right. That said, within at least within our department, um, our nurses routinely go without their breaks because there's stuff to do. Um, there's patients to see. We want to move them to the floor. We want to get the next patient back from the waiting room. We got to check in the ambulance. They, they routinely, um, you know, skip the, the thing, you know, don't do the things that their union contract says they could just put their foot down and say, I'm going on my lunch break. See ya. Um, I worry about that less in, in our group uh, mm. because we're all in the same boat. None of... You know, none of us are going to be like, I'm going to eat lunch for 30 minutes. Good luck. When you're sitting two feet away from your partner at the computer next to you, you know, trying to manage the, you know, trying to manage the department. It's just, it's just not, it's not how our personalities are. Um, you know, our, our group is, is, a, you know, someone 
calls in sick, four people, you know, say, Hey, I can come work that shift. Right. You know, it's just, we're, we're there. Right. We, we have each other's backs. And I, I guess, so I don't worry about that as much. Um, I think the, you know, we have our, our medical director current and past have done an excellent job in finding personalities and hiring personalities that work well together. Could we end up with someone who's kind of a dud and then have trouble getting rid of them? Yeah, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I've been there 12 years. Some of the doc, I mean, one of our docs has been there almost 30 years. Ha- hasn't happened. It's not as big a concern, especially being a small group. You know, if we were a multi-specialty group with, you know, 200, 300 physicians, I could see that being, being a worry. Um, but none of us are going to leave anybody else hanging in our group. It just is not the way we operate. It hasn't in the past. There's no reason to think that's going to change. Yeah, it makes sense. And it makes sense, especially when you think about like professional athletes being in unions, right? So, yeah. so yeah, the fact that baseball players have a, have a union doesn't mean that they can just sort of bat 100 and stay in the league forever. Right. right. For sure. I mean, there's, there's still, you know, in the end, this is medicine and you're, and you're dealing with people's lives. And if you mess up, you're going to hear about it and you're going to, there's going to be some review process that doesn't, you know, it doesn't take away the, the peer review and the, you know, all those kinds of things. It's, it's, um, it's really more about working conditions for us than it is about, you know, are you a good physician or are you not? Got it. Yeah. So one of your partners, um, Dr. Bryce uh, Pulliam wrote an article in, in MedPage today, and I just want to read a, a little excerpt from that. He said, we, we've watched as the increase in corporatization of medicine around the country has reduced physicians' autonomy to provide the care they felt was in the best interest of their patients. We saw longstanding physician groups at other institutions replaced in the blink of an eye by physicians from large contract management groups. We knew we were not immune to these possibilities and needed a new strategy to stand against them. Can you talk a little bit about the the corporate side of things or the the non-hospital employed options out there and how that factored in? Yeah, I mean, so... We're, I, I mean, in, in fairness, so this is the only hospital I've, I've, this is, it's not the only hospital I've worked in, but this is the main hospital that I work in. I work in another yeah. little hospital for a different, different hospital system, but you know, Providence is giant. It's one, one of, if not the largest medical you know, system in the country. Um, yeah. and it is, and, and within that system, Providence Medford is kind of small fish. It's, it's, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of out here by ourselves. Often what we hear when we raise a concern, whether that's about how our EMR functions or any number of things is, uh, you know, we have to ask Portland about that. Mm. And Portland has bigger fish to fry than us. I mean, it's just, just the way in any system, that's the way it is. The, the, the smallest, you know, the smallest places are going to get the, the least amount of resources. While I understand that from a business perspective, it's hard to watch, uh, you know, Providence go after investors you know, the, the Providence overall CEO getting a, a six plus million dollar bonus last year. And we're being told we don't have money for an ultrasound tech. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem right. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't certainly don't know the details of, of, of Providence investment portfolio and, and Wall Street investors and all those things, but it's, there have been news articles about that. Um, and it certainly feels true. Um, and I, I feel like as health systems become bigger and bigger and swallow up smaller and smaller, you know, other small health systems, it becomes a lot more about money and a lot less about healthcare and about the patient. Um, and consequently becomes less about the employee also. Um, mm. and, and that's, 
that's a hard, that, it's hard to motivate yourself to go to work in a system like that day after day when you know you're going to go in and it's going to be understaffed and nobody's really feels like they're doing much about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to say nobody wants to work here, but then you have to ask the second question of why doesn't anybody want to work here? Why can't we recruit? Right. Why aren't nurses staying and fix those issues? Um, yeah. Because that, that, that to me seems like a logical progression or a logical next step. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it might be that you're not being paid enough and people don't you know, want more money, but it might be a whole host of other things that are not financial. Um, and uh, so I, I think it, it's as our health systems get bigger and bigger, we'll see, I think, more and more of this. Um, I have never worked for a corporate medical group, you know, a big CMG. I certainly have friends who do and seem relatively unhappy um, for a variety of reasons. Again, you know, it's it's you feel more like a like a pawn in a chess game rather than rather than a mm. valued employee. Um, you're you're someone to fill this. We need a warm body to fill a shift, and you're it. I think that's not what we, you know most docs went into medicine to to feel like. Got it. So I, obviously, I can't I can't finish the conversation on on the the negative side. So let's flip let's flip it to the optimism side. So um, what what makes you optimistic about the future of of emergency medicine? I think, you know, biased to being an EM doc, but yeah. <laughs> I think EM docs are, are well-suited um, just by the nature of what we do to, um, to really push hard to make medicine better. We are resuscitationists. We are proceduralists. We are, you know, in many ways, the experts in lots and lots of things in the hospital. Um, and I think that means that we have, it can have a much stronger voice than we do right now to... Mm-hmm create change. Are we ever going to stop getting, you know, a surgeon's post-op patient who they can't see in the office getting sent to the ER? No, probably not. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and um, no, you know, no, no offense to any surgeons out there. They, you know, they're just as busy. Uh, but I, I think by the nature of what emergency medicine is and how it, how it, you know, how it is within a hospital, within, within our, our U.S. medical system, we see everything and we manage everything. And um, I think that that can give us um, power to have our voices heard. You know, unionization is, is certainly one way to do that. Advocacy groups like ASAP and AEM, other, you know, big, you know, there's certainly big leaders in the field who have big voices. Um, I think that's, it's all important. And I think it will ultimately make um, emergency medicine a better uh, specialty to be in. I think we will, hopefully see a swing back the other direction where, you know, they're yeah. where all the residency positions are full because everybody wants to do it because in the right. end it is a great job. It's, it's satisfying. You are helping people every single day, but there are definitely things that need to be worked out and, and fixed. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, you know, we, we take pride in being the, the MacGyvers of medicine for the patient. And now yeah. we've been basically called to be the MacGyvers of the of the system right. to, yeah, to this fix is, the system. This is, we, we are uniquely suited to be the problem solvers for sure. Right. Got it. And um, more kind of locally or specific to your emergency department, is there someone in your emergency department or in the hospital that you want to highlight as a, as a superstar or a, a cut above? Um, I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I, I, I would nominate our whole group for that, for that honor. Um, I great. think it took, it took a lot of, guts to do this and mm-hmm. to do it as quickly and as unanimously as we did, I think it really speaks volumes about who we are as a group and, and how much we care about the patients that are walking in the door. You know, yes, there are, you know, there's 
there are three of us who have kind of been doing the meetings and the and the, the letter writing and those sorts of things. But that that's it. That doesn't. I don't think that makes us us three stand out particularly. It's really it's our group deciding this is what needs to happen to make positive change. Right. Um, and so I, I'm I'm really I'm really proud of our group for you know everybody voting yes, um, including you know our PAs and nurse practitioners. You know, we have four, three of them are, are new employees and they were like, yeah, let's do mm. it. It was really heartening to, to just kind of know that everybody is really solidly behind this, this push to make change. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So one, one question I always ask is what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? Ooh, well, I, I guess uh, my, my favorite movie of all time is The Usual Suspects. It's an oldie, but again, oh, so good. I, I wish I had more time to re- read more than I do, but with, with family obligations and work, it's it's, yeah. it's sometimes few and far between. Uh, one of my favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. It's hard to go wrong there. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I guess I would leave it at that. <laughs> Very cool. So um, if folks are inspired by by your work um, and want to learn more, what's, what's the best way to reach you? Um, probably email is the best way to, to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would absolutely encourage people if they, if they want more information, happy to, happy to connect with them. Um, I know Dr. Pulliam also would be happy to, to do that and I can, you know, we can, we can tag team it. Um, but, um, I, I think knowing that there is another way, um, to have your voices heard is important and it may not be for everybody. And certainly there are people who can't, um, just based on their employment status, but it's, Unionization, I think, is a viable option for lots of people, um, and can really and doesn't have to be a contentious option. It's it's it doesn't have to be a, a headbutting with your administration. It can be a it can be a collegial thing. So I, th- I think it's it's certainly worth exploring. Well, Dave, thanks for joining us on the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. I've learned a ton, um, and your story certainly is inspiring. In that you you put the patient first, you put your your group first, and really done the right thing. Well, thank, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, if anybody has questions or, or concerns or anything, I'm happy to, happy to answer those. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.